Hey guys, Tyson here. You're in for a treat today. We've got one of Australia's most highly regarded distance running coaches on the show today. His name is Adam Diddick. He's a very good friend of mine. Um, he's an Olympic coach. He is the coach of Jess Trengove, or now Stenson. Um, he is the he's he's a real mover and shaker in the scene of athletics. He's he's done a lot to to really try and um, uh, coach his athletes to not only run faster but see that track and field or athletics is is a lot more than an individual sport and that when our powers are combined we can perform at a lot higher level. So it was actually recorded about a year and a half ago uh, when I was living in London and he was over there cheering on Jess Trengove around the London Marathon and it was a, it was a podcast that I was, I was really keen to do for a long time. I'd always wanted just to sit down with Adam and pick his brain about uh, some of his beliefs and some of his approaches to the way that he coaches. And, and what I love about Adam is his heart for the sport spreads um, far beyond just elite level athletes. He, he really wants to help people just improve their running. So regardless of where you are in your running journey, or, or even if you are on a, a purely running journey, maybe you're a triathlete or a footballer trying to improve your uh, your fitness for your game, um, I, I think there's a lot that you can take out of what Adam has to share. So I'd encourage you to get a notepad and pen out. I know I will be when I listen back to this one. And uh, and just jot down, down, uh, jot down some ideas. Um, super grateful that Adam made the time. Uh, we were in my little studio apartment in London when this was recorded. So the little bit of banter at the start is him giving me a hard time about the, the podcast studio set up at that time. Get out of the podcast studio. <laughs> That's good. So I'm I was, impressed you managed to bring your jacket into it. Oh uh, yeah, it was. I was so nervous about um about you seeing it because I knew you would tell me exactly what you thought. <laughs> or the jacket or the or the, the studio. Whole, the whole studio. Yeah, we're not really sitting here with a towel over the TV. Oh, I love the fact that we call this. I love the fact that we we are still calling this a studio. Pop central. <laughs> Pop central because um it's so embarrassing whenever someone comes in to come and check it out they're like oh I feel like it's usually people that I don't know so well so they're usually a little bit polite. But I knew that waiting for you to come and see how I set up with a towel over the TV and my jumper over a bag. So if you didn't have the bag, would you just have some old man standing there in your jacket? <laughs> I'd have to. I'd, have, I'd actually have to do that. Oh, man. it's um. Oh, I'm glad we got a chance to do this because it's not long that you're going to be in London for. We got. I'm actually so impressed with your effort to come to London for five days. <laughs> Got a girl running the marathon, Jess, on Sunday. So you've come and crashed at probably the best accommodation in London just to get yourself set up. So Adam's staying at uh, mine and Jesse's little studio apartment here in London, which is, it, I feel bad for the guy. It's the most uncomfortable bed. He's, it's an army barrack bed. There's not too many places I get to tickle the, the host's feet to wake them up. <laughs> yeah. Jesse loves it. <laughs> oh, but no, in all honesty, I'm super excited to have this chance because... Um, Jessie said to me today, she goes, baby, you've been thinking about the questions you want to ask Adam. I was like, babe, honestly, I've known the guy since 2006, and I think some of these questions now I've just got an excuse to ask him, so I'm excited <laughs> to have the opportunity. But um, look, I want to start at a really random spot, and then we'll just see where the conversation takes us from there. I know with you, it's always going to be a good conversation, so I'm not too stressed about the, the direction. You said something really interesting yesterday, and for where you are right now, um, just career-wise, I thought it was super interesting because you said to me uh, that, I don't know, were you, you were speaking to a group of people or you had mentioned that you think part of the reason that now you've you know developed a pretty successful coaching career um, is 
because of the fact that your your dreams, your desires from your athletics career have sort of followed on. You said, man, okay, I wasn't as good an athlete as I dreamt of being. And you think that's given you a little bit of an inspiration to become a far better coach, which is obviously paying off. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think always I knew I was going to be a coach at some point, but didn't ever expect it to be as soon as it happened. So, you know, I'm 35 now and I say this often, that's the age I am to start coaching. And I've now been coaching for 10 years. So um, it's a pretty interesting way to get to where I am. And the only thing I can think of is, I guess I'm 10 years ahead of where I expect it to be. Um, but ultimately I always had a drive to succeed in sport. I was passionate about it from a young age, you know, watching every YouTube video I could find, you know, learning about it. I was, I was a full on running geek. Um, but that ultimately wasn't really doing much for my running. And I started seeing my limitations and physical limitations through injury and all sorts of things. And I started asking those questions of, you know, what, what do I need to do to be better? And I think by always asking those questions, I always sort of had that analytical approach that probably set me up to be a coach. Um, and now as a coach, I'm still doing the same things. Mm. I'm still asking, what do I need to know? What do I need to know about my athletes? What do I need to know about their training? Um, how can I make it better? And uh, how can I improve on what we're doing? So I think that's ultimately where it's led me to, to more sort of working with some high-performance athletes um, because ultimately they are at the top of their game. And... Uh, they're driven just as much to be as good as they can be. So they're always looking for what, what are the what are the one that I haven't yet ticked off, and what can I do to make them better? Yeah, I think one of the things that stands out to me whenever I tell people about you know the role that you're in at the moment, the fact that you've got such a full on coaching role, they say oh, it's pretty nice though because you've you've continued from your running career. So the hours that you're putting in now are going to be pretty similar to what you were doing as an athlete. But I can't help but get the feeling, and especially through talking to you, that the the lifestyle or the commitments that are involved in being a coach are a lot different and maybe even a little bit more involved than what it was uh, back when you were an athlete. So you said, okay, so you've been coaching now for 10 years, and I can't wait to ask you a whole heap of questions about this, but through that transition phase from going from athlete to now full-time coach, what are some of the biggest things that stand out to you? What were some of the most difficult part, uh, aspects of transitioning that athletics career into now taking the lead role and, and trying to help others' athletics careers thrive? Yeah, I think probably like anyone who, who experienced the, the sport as an athlete, uh, you always got that situation where, um, where you're basically trying to step away from exactly what you did and using your experiences to, to predetermine what you give others. Um, and... You know, it's hard because it's, you know, you build on your experiences, but, you know, looking at specific sessions that I used and um, not necessarily throwing them out the window, but refining them, improving them, uh, tailoring them to, to suit the athlete more so than, than what you had in the past. So um, not necessarily just taking exactly what I did and trying to, to you know, supplement that into the athlete's training program. Um, so I guess I just sort of went with... Uh, the philosophies that influenced me, um, the thoughts about what I feel the athlete needs to do to improve, and then uh, and then I guess sort of trying to meld that all together to come up with something that suits them specifically. Mm, uh, that's something yeah. that's really interesting to me about the whole athletic scene um, is when you tell someone that you're a coach or when you tell someone that you're an athlete, a lot of people think, okay, so you just got to run. 
but mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things that I love speaking to you about, and you mentioned the philosophy of the running before, is the fact that there's so many other components that goes into being a great athlete. And um, I think a lot of what you speak about in the coaching scene really crosses over to what I speak about um, in this podcast scene, in a lot of the blogs that I write. And that, that's this whole idea of balance. And I think a sport that's so involved like running um, or, or a sport that's so involved as, I guess, any professional or any elite sport that you're involved in, there's, I guess it's a bit of a, a talent to be able to balance running with other aspects of your life. And mm. I think one thing that I love hearing you speak about is, okay, the, the different aspects that go into you know creating a lifestyle that's not just all about running and it's not just all about success, but it's quite balanced with family and uh, your training and your competition. Uh, what are some of the other components that if you are taking an athlete under your wing that you try and encourage them to focus on outside of the running scene? Yeah, oh, look, I think running in general is, and, and most sport can be very obsessive. So it's uh, very easy to lead you away from your other focuses in your life. And and I think sometimes that can be to some athletes' detriment. Um, to some, they, they thrive in that environment. It's about reading that athlete and understanding where that fits for them. For me, I uh, I believe that you're an athlete for a short time, so there's sometimes you've got to be all in and take take advantage of that opportunity. But there's uh, there's also the bigger picture of what your life's going to to hold. So to to throw everything into the detriment of the rest of your life, it's not always going to be the best for your running. So we always talk about and have always talked about from the start of my coaching that balance of the the simple sports psych model where you look at you know the physical, spiritual, mental and emotional sides of, of your life and making sure that you're factoring them into the equation just as much as you are how much I run, um, how how much I sleep. And you, you're looking at going, okay, well, you know, I need to keep a balance. I need to be healthy in my, my own output and perspective uh, if you're spending all your time running and never see your friends, you know the the the, the fruits of your life probably are, are not going to be as great. So, um, you know, you need to have those considerations, and you need to have that faith that you know good things can happen to yourself, and that's that spiritual element to it. Um, you need to be sort of a well balanced individual, being able to work with people effectively. Um, you know, understand uh, the times where you can have influence over areas where the times you have to ask for help on on things. And so the smart athletes who sort of navigate through those periods are the ones who ultimately come out the top end. You know, there's there's many athletes who on a on a physical level and even a mental level have have all the talent in the world, but sometimes they forget to uh, acknowledge those other areas of their life, and that can sometimes impact and be the even that small one percent that makes a difference to detract them from actually getting the best performance out of themselves. And and ultimately, as a coach, sometimes I like to sit back and just observe and see how the athlete deals with that, and um, and offer them advice if they want to hear it. Um, sometimes they don't. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're quite independent. Other times they'll, they'll look for it from you. Um, sometimes when having a review, you have to speak about more than just the running to see that those influences can then meld towards getting their peak performance. Yeah, so when you've got an athlete that might be a little bit out of whack, and I love this because it sort of flows on into the rest of your life. I mean, it's, I guess it's impossible to have everything evenly balanced at the same time, especially when there's so many plates you've got sure. spinning. When you'd find an athlete that is just way too obsessive or way too over the top with one particular component, and you can see that it's going to be a de- it's going to be detrimental to all other components, how is it that you address an athlete about stuff like that to be able to help them see that hey, this is going to be there for their benefit, but sort of raising that difficult conversation or raising that mm. awkward conversation, which they might find a little bit 
confronting or a little bit sort of invasive. How do you cross that line in a way that allows you to get the best out of the athlete and I guess the relationship that you guys have? Yeah, well, I think that that term relationship is the most important part of it. That relationship that I develop with the athlete is what will ultimately allow me to have access to giving them that feedback and criticism um, and encouragement at times and for them to, to feel like it's adequate and worthwhile listening to. So developing that relationship takes time. Um, it, uh, it, it really requires you to be observant and, and recognise and take an interest in the individual, not just what their performance is, what their training is, how well they're doing with that, but actually take an interest in their life and what makes them tick. Uh, we, we were having this discussion today actually with, um, with Jesse's over here running the London Marathon and, and we'll be a, a guy that trains with her basically talking about, you know, there are so many different ways to approach training um, and you can look at the different physical attributes that an athlete might have, but you also need to recognise the psychological attributes that allow them to sort of accept that level of training, that type of training and all the rest of it. So I think that that's the one thing I try and get a try and understand about the athlete what what makes them tick mm. um, and then looking at a training level that sort of suits them but ultimately you have you can't just be one-eyed in the way that you think about an athlete either you have to be prepared to let them provide you with the feedback about how they feel about certain things so if I come in and I have my predetermined thoughts on exactly what an athlete should look like how they should how they should move how they should walk what they should say that's ultimately not going to work because that's going to be a model that will suit only certain individuals. So I think for any coach, the cleverness comes from recognising the differences in athletes, finding ways to problem solve to achieve the outcomes you want to with that athlete. And sometimes it just comes down to, from the original part of your question, is just being open and honest and the athlete understanding that you're not attacking but um, but trying to support them in ways. So um, receiving that feedback is, is really up to the athlete. Mm. Uh, but if you don't approach that in the right manner, if you're aggressive in the nature that you do that, if you try and grandstand your approach, that doesn't always suit many athletes and sometimes it's more about helping them to identify it rather than just putting it you know, black and white in their face yeah. because that might actually scare some people <laughs> yeah. and they uh, they may not ultimately want to want to address that area they might you know it's a simple fight or flight mechanism within an athlete uh, within an individual so if you're if you're going to approach them in a way that they're either going to um i guess reject the the feedback or or uh, or want to deny it then that's not really going to help so you have to find a way to approach the athlete in a meaningful and appropriate way oh my gosh so that they um so they actually want to listen to what you've got to say and, and the more you the more you sort of understand athlete the better chance you've got of actually addressing those issues yeah see okay i, I listen to you here talk about this stuff now and it's I reckon anyone listening to this, it's, it sounds incredible to hear, but I, I love the fact you mentioned it before that your coaching career started probably 10 years earlier than what you'd expected. You started when you were 25, the injuries and stuff started to creep in. So got no doubt that over those last 10 year, years, you've learned a whole heap about these things that you just I certainly didn't about. approach it the same way when I started. I mean, I, I scared more athletes off than I, than I retained in the early years yeah. and uh, because I had an approach and it was my approach yeah. and there was no exceptions to that rule. And I think, I think as, as I sort of welcomed and understood that not everyone approaches it, not everyone has the same mindset as me, not everyone has the same interest or the same goal in their running as what I did. Um, 
or does the running for the same reason that I did? I quickly had to learn that I had to adapt and understand that about those athletes before I could expect any approach to be successful with yeah. them. So, um, so yeah, it's it's not just looking at the athlete on paper. It's it's looking at them as an individual, understanding them, accepting them for what they are, and and recognizing that one approach to one athlete is not going to be the same to anyone else. And yeah. and I, it almost offends me when athletes think that I treat them all the same. Yeah, because I just can't. I can't see that as being effective. So uh, whether their training looks the same, my approach to them might be different. Yeah. So. See, there's almost a component of humility that comes in with th- that approach that you've taken. Because I can imagine when you're, when you're a few years younger and you're just starting to take some athletes on and you've got this idea of what you think a great athlete actually looks like and you haven't yet considered you know, all the different levels and all the different personality types and all the different relationship factors that come into that. Mm. It must be a difficult moment. And as you're one of your best mates, I can say this. like You're, you're not afraid to tell people exactly what you think and for me I think that's been one of the most beneficial things because you can call bullshit sometimes when I'm doing something wrong and I know I've seen you do it with other athletes and I love it but was it difficult for you to be able to start to uh, I don't know if it's tone it down is the right word but just to figure out a, a even more effective way to be able to address that stuff or is it just naturally um, as a result of seeing the benefits that come along with that sort of just started to um, I think there's a number of things I think there is yeah, you obviously experience and see the benefits of different approaches, but you also learn from other coaches and how they had approached the situation. I, I speak regularly to to mentor coaches that I had. You know, one of my first original coaches, Tony Checker. I speak to him a great deal about some of these things. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, an evergreen Richard Huggins who who will always offer me advice and just be there to listen. You know, uh, you know, there's another great influence of mine is someone like Nikki Frey, who's just you know, it's balanced in her approach. And so it always causes me, no one, none of those three people have, have ever told me how to approach something, but, uh, but question me as to why I approach things in a different way. And, and what, what do I think would happen if I approach another way? So that's what I've always liked about the three of them as mentors and, and people who give me guidance from time to time, because they're, they're not there trying to tell me or enforce their their view or approach on me, but basically ask me to question why I'm doing something yeah. away. And that ultimately gives you the answers because you, you develop a, an approach with different athletes. And, um, yeah, I, I guess that's that's part of it. But the other part of it is just maturing. I mean, mm. 25, you, your brain's still developing to a point where you probably can't accept the responsibility or the recognition of some aspects of people's lives. And so that life experience, having a family of my own now has changed my, my perspective on things, working in a, in a school environment for over 13 years, um, dealing with things in a different nature, working with co-workers on different things, looking at parents and, and how I've dealt with them in a, in a teaching framework as opposed to working in a, in a coaching mentality and, and understanding um, their different motivations to, towards doing things. So... Um, I think my maturity and experience is probably what's helped me to grow in those areas. Um, and sometimes that happened naturally. Sometimes that happened through experience. Mm. Uh, but being 35 and looking back at what I was like at 25, uh, I have got no idea why anyone even listened to me <laughs> back at that age. And, and I also look at so many mistakes I made. And it wasn't necessarily about what training I gave someone. Um, I, I don't think there was ever anything... I don't think that's as technical as what people make it out to be. Mm. What I do find that uh, that I made mistakes was how I felt about situations. Yeah. And so 
how I ultimately felt about situations um, determined how I would respond to situations. Yeah. And so, you know, I was very anxiety driven towards things. I had, I took too much ownership of people's performances, training and all the rest of it. I had a very close attachment to all of that. And as I've been able to remove myself a little bit more from that, it's given me a better understanding of people too yeah. because I'm not trying to push them towards what I want them to be but allowed them to be who they want to be and uh, and worked with that. Yeah. Um, so I think that's probably been the major difference. Um, but again, I don't know that I would have even seen that even if I had 10 years of coaching under my belt from 15 to 25 because just I wasn't emotionally, mentally mature enough to be able to, psychologically mature enough to be able to accept and understand those things. Yeah. Whereas when you come to the point where you where you live life a little bit more, um, you see life and you experience it a little bit more, you start to get a better perspective on it. And I think ultimately some of the things that have made it harder for me to do some of the things I want to do, you know, having a job, balancing that with, with giving my family adequate time has given me a better perspective to understand when people have those motivations in their life and allowing them to to accept and um, recognize the the balance they require in their life mm. rather than you know being as I was as a teenager and probably in my early 20s it's all about running all the decisions I made was designed towards go towards my running and it seems kind of silly now because I was nowhere near the level that was ever going to going to uh, come into the glory to to recognize the sacrifices and choices I made but um, at the same time um, you know, I guess that's a passion that you have. Mm. And sometimes that passion was to my own detriment. And hopefully these days I've sort of learned that, that passion is sort of more balanced and, and recognises more aspects of my life rather than just the one that I get solely focused on. Yeah. And I, I think I've got my wife to be thankful for that because she's the one who keeps me grounded. She's the one who who sort of keeps me from getting too obsessed about it. And and helping me to understand the balance that I need to have as a coach because that's ultimately what I refer to for my athletes mm. so, I, and I, living that. I think one of the big things that stands out to me, and it's really cool to hear you talk about, um, you know, when you were 25, you started to wonder, <laughs> you wonder why anyone looking back yeah. would ever listen to you. But it's funny you say it because I remember that's when we first met. I moved to Adelaide to train with you and Dan. Yeah, it was Matt about 23, 24, yeah. just a couple of years before that. Under under Sean Crichton, um, great Aussie distance runner. And one thing that really stood out to me in the moment, I guess one of the big reasons I, I stuck around with the group was as a 24-year-old or 23-year-old, whatever you were, I always felt as though the advice that you were offering was well beyond you know the, the years or well beyond the age that you were. And I, and I still say the same today. And I know that anyone in the athletics Australia or the athletics world now that has come in contact you, with you. I know a lot of great coaches speak really highly of you and about your ability just to be able to, you know, foresee things that a lot of other people might miss. But what I love about that is from my perspective, being able to look at you, I can see that. But you looking back, you say, far out, I had so much to learn. But I think from the early days, from the days that we first met back in 2006, there was always something that... I could see, I guess, looking back in your potential to not only coordinate a group, but coordinate training and coordinate and really tap into people's talents. But you fast forward 10 years and now you've you've managed to secure some um, big teams. The Olympic debut as the, the track coach last year, um, taking a couple of athletes along with you as a marathoner and a steeplechase athlete and a 5K runner. Something's obviously working, but I know that that journey from the early days until, you know, you got to Rio last year, which obviously I know is not the finish line for you. There's some massive, massive things that that sort of go down in in order to get there. But I'd love if you could just walk us through some of the challenges and some of the difficulties that 
come along with trying to commit your your heart and your your time to this passion that you have to see other athletes flourish and I guess also get your um, ability to help that athlete flourish down on paper. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because I look back over the last ten years and if I knew what was ahead of me for those ten years, no matter the the opportunities it's presented, it probably would scare the crap out of me <laughs> um, because I never recognised when I started coaching the level of commitment, work, and how much it takes over your your mindset. Um, forever, I'm always thinking about athletes. And, okay, so there's this athlete who might be injured. All right, so how do I... I need to call them. I need to have a chat to them. I need to make sure they feel that I'm supporting them. Um, and, you know, I mean, 2016 was a year of barely any sleep, and it wasn't just because my kids were waking me up. Um, it was because it was... I wanted to to do my best, and um, and I, it was hard because it was it was a challenging year because there were many indicators along the way that made me feel like I wasn't wasn't at the standard, and um, and I was challenged probably from my own um, expectations of what I could or should or wanted to offer athletes, uh, and I had to had to try and. I had to try and silence those demons a little bit in myself to be able to give myself the opportunity to to think freely and effectively um, to to help the athletes and and yeah there were there were there were plenty of challenges in 2016 but the challenges from when I first started coaching I mean I think it's hard because some of the athletes who have been with me since that time they probably recognise the change but they still sometimes treat me like the the coach that I used to be and I, I think I've come a long way from that from that point and. It's sometimes hard um, because those first impressions stick. And I was a very dictating coach in those days. Everyone had to meet at this time. Everyone had to do this training. On this day, they had to do this. They had to meet on pretty much every day. Look, as organised as I could make it, I was controlling the environment to the T. But that was very, very tough. And um, and it was not no surprise that soon... Uh, soon enough, athletes, when they started to get to the standard they wanted, started to understand what they were doing, why they were doing it, started to recognise they didn't need that level of control. And that was some the first part that I had to get comfortable with releasing that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need to control every element of it. I need to respect the athletes are uh, intelligent individuals and can think for themselves and they don't need me to control and tell them when they need to run, how long they need to run every single day to the point now where, where I'm quite comfortable saying to some athletes, right, this is a structure of what your plan is going to look like up until this race, this championship, this marathon. Um, and you you need to sort of recognise that this is the pattern of how things are going to build towards that. Um, this is a structure of how we're going to work. But ultimately, I'm going to allow you to be responsible for what you do on this day and this day. I'm going to I'm going to manage this part for you. I'm going to help give you guides as to where you should be for certain periods. And I want you to give me feedback as to whether you're coping mm. and recognise that they're quite capable of doing that. Um, in the early days, I was over-managing the situation. Um, and again, that's what I referred to earlier about being overly attached to every individual I coach, being very precious about what people said about me, how they responded to me, whether they respected me. And and I was I was like a bulldog, you know. If I heard anything that wasn't um, wasn't in line with how I thought that it should be, then I was I was on the attack. Um, and uh, and my my introduction to coaching wasn't a pretty one. It was one of criticism. It was one of people doubting me. It was one of you know people talking nonsense about me. And I got to a point where I was like, 
people are saying so much stuff that I said that apparently I said or did. I, like, when did I have time to sleep <laughs> to do all these things? And and I got very defensive all the time. And I learned to I learned to live with that. And I learned to um, and I and I learned to accept that that was the nature of sport. Mm. That not everyone's going to pat you on the back and say well done. And sometimes the quietest moments I've had is after some of the athletes that I coach have had their greatest success. And I don't say our greatest success, I say theirs because they own it. You know, my responsibility is to support them to achieve what they want to achieve, um, not what I want them to achieve. Mm. And so that's been the hard part. So I'll, I'll come home after a after a Commonwealth Games where, where Jess won a medal and, and I'm really proud of her. And, uh, and I'll sort of be met with um, with silence. You know, no, no, one's, no one's welcoming me into the athletic stadium. No one's saying, hi, how are you going? That was great. And I sort of had to accept that. That's fine. That's that's just part of it. Yeah. You know. And um, and what I want to see is that they're patting the athletes on the back and they're saying, "Well done. You deserve that." And they do because mm. they do all the hard work. I'm there to support them. And if if the athletes are happy with me, that's that's enough validation for me. I'm not looking for that from anyone else. Yeah. So and I think that was something that I always look for. I look for validation. I want to know the coaches say you're doing a good job. But ultimately, it, it doesn't bother me what they think anymore. What bothers me is that the athletes. Um, look back and and say yes, I'm I'm really happy the way we work together, um, or they they're comfortable enough to say to me, look, I liked how we did this and this, but you know in the coming prep I'd like to actually focus on this area. Great, no worries, mm. I don't mind. Yeah. I don't mind having that feedback. I don't mind including the athlete in the in the planning, the programming, the uh, the the setting of the environment. I, I don't have any problems with that. Um, whereas I definitely would have had issues with that in the past uh, because yeah. I felt that I needed to recognize my worth and value as a coach whereas i don't i don't need to do that anymore i'm i'm comfortable enough with if the athlete's happy with their results they achieve their goal um i was able to play some role in supporting them to do that that's that's great you know that's really really what i'm hoping to achieve out of my coaching yeah i think when you get athletes on the on the world scale like some of your athletes are now I guess the eyes of, of athletes around the world are, are looking at you and judging what it is that you do. And I guess with that comes, you know, not only a little more pressure, but I guess a lot of opinions. And as you were saying, uh, everyone everyone seemed to have an opinion on, you know, the, the way you were coaching or um, the, the, the different things you were bringing into a training group. You say, okay, like now you have to learn to switch off from that. That's an incredible talent. That's an incredible ability to be able to switch off from some of the feedback or, or, or just some of the, the, I guess, the spew that comes out of people's mouth um, around what you do. How the heck do you switch off from some of this stuff that you hear floating around about yeah, different techniques that you're using, different principles that you're applying? How can you just rest easy with all that noise going on around you? I think more than anything... I started recognising no one actually knows what I do because no one actually bothers to ask a question or take an interest. <laughs> yeah. They ultimately just they ultimately just form their opinion from I don't know where they form it from, yeah. but but there's only very few people that actually bother to ask me what what do you do? How do you do this? And um, you know what's your thoughts on this? And and it's their opinion that I'll value, not someone who who will say something that I know well that you know they criticise my training, but. I'm not yet to recognise that they've ever asked to know what we're doing, or um, or anything like that. And and ultimately, I think we all we always make way too much of what the training is. I think um, I think from my perspective, anyone who's working and has worked for a period of time as a coach re- starts to recognise that the role of the coach there's there's a portion of it is getting the getting the training effective and 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 um, correct, 
but ultimately that's only that's one part of a coach's role and and that's that that that's something that people have to sort of learn to be comfortable with mm. um so if you're looking for the the the, the magical training session or what this person did ultimately it doesn't really matter you need to work out what works for that athlete um, so whilst I have some general principles that I work with some philosophies that you know I write I write probably um, about 15 to 20 training programs a month and there's some similarities between some of them there's some absolutely dip, massive differences between some and that's that's what I want to be recognized as a coach to mm-hmm. be able to to, to mould my approach to suit what the athlete needs, not this is my recipe for success because yeah. it, it just doesn't exist. I, I think people looking in when they see what you've done with some of the athletes that you've had, I mean, you've taken a couple of athletes um, under your wing and from there you've helped them flourish into a, a career, which I guess <laughs> we're getting a call from Big Lopez Lemong as we speak, which for all you, which for all you middle distance runners in the world right now, do you want to take that call? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited. I've read his book and now I feel like I'm starting to get sweats because I'm excited that you're just getting a call from him. Great timing, Lopez. Um, what was I saying? Oh, outside looking in, I guess people would look at the training that you're giving these athletes and looking at the success that these athletes are having and thinking, far out, he's doing something which is bloody working. And as a result, people have started to turn their heads. And then last year... You got the call up from Athletics Australia to welcome me onto the uh, Olympic team to come along and, and support the the track, the, the athletics squad. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Because as you've mentioned, there's a lot of lonely moments in the coaching world. So I can only imagine when you get a call like that to say, hey, not only do we want you on the team, but we recognise how bloody good you are at what you do. That must be a rewarding moment. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think it's it's interesting. I mean, we, we, we talk about the success of the athletes, but I will... I'll still say that I think each and every one of them, there's more for them to achieve. So, um, you know, there's certain athletes within the group that I coach that, you know, aren't necessarily international standard, but I'm, I'm super proud of what they achieve. I'm super proud of them for the commitment that they've offered to it. Um, but I certainly look at what we do, and it's very small scale to what others have done. So when we talk about success, I'm still very much in perspective of going, okay, I think that we're doing some good things. I'm really proud of what we're doing, but at the same time, I still there's so much more for 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 me to feel like I'm having that impact in the coaching sense mm. um, and to the to the athletic community. So, I mean, I guess being called up to a to be a team coach on on the Olympic team was was a huge moment and opportunity for me. Um, it, it's an interesting. It's an interesting concept because I don't know that necessarily being a good in coach with individuals necessarily makes you a good team coach. I think there's 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 a difference to the two of them, and I see some amazing um, individual coaches who haven't necessarily got that opportunity. But I also see some people who are amazing team coaches who don't necessarily need to be validated with uh, incredible individual performances. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a hard thing because we often look at okay those who are being successful individual athletes are ultimately going to be great team coaches, but that's not necessarily the case so I think we have to get a bit of perspective and understanding on that um, I like to think that you know in, in my years of, of coaching I've probably developed an understanding of what some of these elite athletes are looking for from someone to support them in those final moments and I'm hoping that being on the other side of things where I was a personal coach in London gave me an understanding where um, I was trying to get across to the team coaches what I would like them to sort of take on board from my perspective, knowing that they were going to be the ones being face-to-face with 
with the athlete that I coach mm. um, and giving them due respect because they're the ones who have worked so hard with that athlete to get them to that Olympic Games. So my first and foremost consideration was, okay, I'm there to support the athlete, but I'm also wanting that individual coach to recognise that I'm there to, to on their behalf, not on my own individual motivation. I'm there to, to be their eyes and ears, to be their voice. And so I, I very much factored that into the equation. So when I took on the team coach role, the first thing I did was, was connect with all the coaches because I wanted them to recognise and, and trust that I was there to, to support them. I wasn't there to take over from them because that's not what I, that's not how I saw the role. I saw the role in recognising that it's very difficult to get access to, to warm-up areas, um, competition areas, uh, get into a, an Olympic village to, to be there to support the athletes. Um, so, and it was, it's basically reserved for that team coach role. So uh, the personal coach didn't always have those, those opportunities. They would have loved them. They would have been super effective in that environment. But, you know, there's only so many, so many um, places, so many beds, so many part accreditations. So I really wanted the team, uh, the individual coaches to know that I was there to support what they wanted for their athlete. And ultimately, it'd be silly if I didn't listen to them because they were the ones who knew their athlete way better than I would. Yeah. And I could only hope to try and get to some understanding of what that athlete was uh, all about through my conversations with that athlete as well as their coach. Yeah. So I'd always ask the coaches, you know, what, what can I do to support you? If you were there, how would you approach this? Um, you know, does that athlete respond to me providing them split times of training? Um, do you require me to give you feedback? And and I, I probably overdid it to, to a certain degree because it, it exhausted me what, the way I approached that team coach role and, and I was living off you know four or five hours sleep a night because I was sitting up late at night doing research on every athlete and every heat that I had uh, responsibilities to an athlete as their team coach and was trying to provide back to their personal coaches statistics on all the athletes that they were racing against so that hopefully they could communicate with their athlete and, and have... Um, have a communication about the tactics and everything they could employ and you know in, in some respects some coaches might have appreciated that some of them it wouldn't have made much of a difference mm. one coach said look I like the fact that you've uh, you've done that but at the same time the meaningful statistic for me is this and I didn't cover that so mm. you know you, you learn that from talking to those coaches and going oh, that's good you know I'll, I'll, count it, I'll consider that next time um, and try and try and do a better job of it, yeah. but ultimately, yeah, I, I was there in the facilitation role to support those coaches to continue doing their job right up until the moment that athlete got onto the line, yeah. knowing that I had the opportunity to be in the warm-up area with them, and uh, if that meant me handing them a towel to, to you know, keep them wiping their brow because they were it was hot and sweaty and humid in in Brazil to provide them with ice so that they could keep cool mm-hmm. uh, to have their drink ready for them to have their shoes so they could change into to do their final strides and just to feel comfortable and confident that they didn't have any stresses yeah. if, if that if I could offer that to an athlete in the warm-up area that was great yeah um, so that was really my role there um, to make sure they got on the bus on time to make sure they had their spikes and their <laughs> their race kits so they didn't leave them back in the village that was that was my role. Just playing dad a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it just just being there to, to be to be someone to support them to minimise the stress that they had. Because ultimately, the one thing that people need to recognise is the Olympic Games is the ultimate goal for many athletes. But it is probably the one of the worst performance environments as you could come into. You've got security everywhere you go through. You know, like imagine going to the airport. You know, just to go to breakfast. You know, you're walking here, there, you know, you have to get on bus at this time and that time. 
And just to have a bit of structure and routine and someone to take care of that thinking for you so that you can just focus on you. Mm. And we want that. We want them just to focus on themselves. They don't need to worry about whether their family's got tickets, where they're going to be sitting in the crowd, um, how they're going to meet up with them afterwards. And if I could facilitate any aspects of those, that's what I was trying to do. But ultimately, um, their personal coaches are the ones responsible for their performance development right up to that day. And there's no way that I'll take any recognition for their performances. I'm just there to support them. Mm, I think one of the things that really makes me just curious, having never been to the Olympic Games, like obviously in a, as an athlete or as a role like what you're in right now, is so there's so much going on. You've said it's not your, your normal environment to prepare in or for a race that you're about to run. It must be an exciting time when you step into, I guess, the Olympic Village or the accommodation, you're in that environment. And sure, you've got all these new distractions, but you've also got the world's best athletes just wandering around you um, uh, you're as welcome at the place as what they are. How did you find just being able to focus on athletes in an environment like that? Because we went and saw Jess Trengove getting ready for her marathon yesterday, her accommodation here in London. And when I walked in, I was so excited just that I might see Kennedy Shubakili or some other athletes that I was so distracted by that that I could barely focus on a conversation. <laughs> I can imagine when you're in a coaching role, if you had my personality, that could be a difficult sort of a, a difficult situation to find yourself in. How did you go just being able to give the athletes that attention in an environment like that? Or did the starstruckness, that's not even a word, did that just not affect you like it would me? Um, I don't know. I think, I think as I've um, experienced certain things along the way, it's probably been lessened. You know, so at the Glasgow Commonwealth Games, I was still taking selfies with athletes because I just <laughs> couldn't believe it, you know. And I started to recognise, okay, I'm here, I'm doing what I need to do. But the focus was on the role that I had to play. And my only interest was doing that to the best of my ability. Um, And so it became became process-driven, just like we talk about athletes, you know, focus on the process. Well, it was the same for me. I needed to... I needed to recognise that I had to perform at my best in my role, just like anyone. If they go to work and they're, they're giving a sales pitch or something like that, they need to be switched on, they need to be ready to, to perform. They need to be well-researched, well well-educated you know, on what they're, what they're talking about. I needed to be the same. So, so my, my need to research things was to, to have a reference point to be able to, to refer to if I need to. And, um, and I, uh, I used to talk about when I first started going on these international teams with Jess, one of the things that when we sit down and I'd basically prepare for my final, my final chat with Jess, like it was a year, tw- you know, like one of my final exams at university, year 12. And, uh, and I'd, I'd spend hours preparing for it just so I knew every single element of the race yeah. that, um, that I needed it. So if she had a question, I had an answer. And it was, I put a lot of pressure on myself to make sure that I was doing the thinking so that she could just be relaxed about everything else and didn't need to worry about all those things. But the thing is, she's evolved as an athlete. She's taken a lot of that in her own stride as well. And she has the ability to absorb some of those things. But also, I think I've had the ability to absorb that through experience and recognize there are things that I used to spend hours looking for and research that really didn't play much role or, re- or had much relevance. I was overdoing it, and and I think also um, I, whether I had another athlete the same age approaching the level of a career that she was at that time, I, I might do the same still. But I also recognise the maturity and experience that she has in her role as an athlete now, and recognise I don't need to tell her some of those things. Yeah. She knows them. She she uh, she has the she has the experience and mindset that she 
just takes it on board. So there are certain things that I still do research and I still have my spreadsheets telling me statistics on this and that, but it's probably half to what I used to do. Yeah. And I still remember that one of the things that made me proud of my approach in the past was I, I remember sitting in Glasgow, at the, at the village in Glasgow at the Commonwealth Games, and I was sitting there and, and John Stephenson came up to me and there's me tapping away on my laptop looking for things. I'm plugged into a Wi-Fi and he says, what are you doing, man? And I said, I said oh, I'm just doing some research for the marathon because I was team coach for the marathon there and I've done this and this and I've gone around and taken videos, I've taken photos of the course, I've looked at weather, I've looked at different... <laughs> and, and he goes, he goes, man, that'll make a difference. He goes, he goes, you know, that's awesome, that'll make a difference. Mm. And so I thought, oh, that's great. I really respect that he, he had the time to say that to me. But I still remember um, one of my fondest memories, which also gave me perspective on how different athletes prepare. If I'd gone to all this effort and done all this, and after we had had our logistics chat about drink bottles and all the rest of it, I said to the, to the, to the team there, I said, right, and, 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 and earlier I had also had Steve Monaghetti come along and present a little, little book that I had got some of the previous athletes who had won medals at the Commonwealth Games for Australia and the marathon to write a letter to the, the athletes. I sort of reached out to many of them and some of them took the opportunity to connect with the athletes. And so Steve Monaghetti had been there, presented that. He was a chef de mission. It was pretty cool that he did that, took the time to do that. Mm. And then after he left, we went through all the drink bottles, all that sort of stuff. And then I said, okay, so does anyone want to go through photos or videos of the course? And I expect them all to go, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, yeah, show me this. And... Um, and I had uh, and I had Jess and Marty then say, yep, all right, I'll hang around to look at it. And Michael Shelley's just walking out the door and I said, Michael, do you want to have a look at any of this? And he goes, ah, oh, it's two laps, isn't it? I said, yeah. He goes, oh, so I'll check out the course in the first lap, but I'll race in the second lap. And I've got to admit, at that point, I almost pissed myself laughing. I think, all right, mate. And, and, uh, and who am I to argue with a guy who probably went on and had one of his best ever runs yeah. and win the gold medal? So, um, you know, whether some of the stuff that I did that helped Jess to win the the bronze medal um, the following day made a difference. I don't know, but mm. if it did or if it didn't, it didn't hurt. And um, and Michael was confident. His approach was confident in how he did it. And and I had to respect that that was his approach. Yeah. And uh, and never will I will I even find it humorous if someone says, "No, I'm okay. I'm, fair enough. That's your approach. Go for it." Um, and and that was probably that realization of separating what I thought they wanted or needed to recognizing they know what they need. Yeah. They're at that level for a reason. Yeah. It's not because they needed to be held by the hand. And, yeah. And respecting them for that, not trying to be something that I wanted them to need me for. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm comfortable with the fact that if I'm, if they need me, I'm there. And so I guess that's probably the, the level that that's sort of gone to. Mm. So, yeah. I think one of the things that stands out, and anyone who's going to be listening to this is going to see it, obviously so passionate about the the role that you're in which is so refreshing because i think man there's a there's a lot of people out there just i guess going through the motions and going through life and maybe feeling a little bit stuck or whatever and i think to hear someone like you in a job that you that you love or in a role that you love and and something that you've had to work really hard to get into um it's super refreshing but i think also with passion comes this um idea that you were speaking about that it's it's really easy to become obsessed with it and i know what that's like as a former athlete and obviously with everything that i'm doing now i I still struggle with that that sort of obsessive component and like you i have have jesse my wife to be able to just calm me down and go hey babe come on like there's other things to be able to focus on but and it also it also you've got to recognize sometimes that that passion can take away from that balance you have in your life Mm. you know i uh, we've talked openly over the last couple of days about the fact that i've just finished up um, working, um, you know, four days a week as a teacher, where I had a had a great job at a school in, in Adelaide St Michael's College, and and 
I really enjoyed working there, but it was hard for me to get really passionate about it because I had this other yeah. passion that, that yeah. took my attention away. And, uh, and, and, and we've even talked, and I've said it to you over the last few days, I wonder how I would be as a teacher if I didn't have this passion as a coach to do what I do now. What could I do as a teacher? Because mm. um, I think the roles are fairly similar. But it was always very hard for me to throw myself all into being a teacher because I was so much wanting to do go all in as a coach. And, um, and, and those one percenters that we talk about for the athletes to tick off, I was using all my energy to tick off those one percenters as a coach to do those little things that I thought made a difference and sometimes they didn't. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, um, what I was actually, I was, I was going to get to, that's such, such a good point. I feel like I could just go on a big tangent with what you've just said there. But let me just get back to my other question because I'm also going to forget. Um, one thing that I needed your advice on, and um, you said it's been something that you wrestled with a little bit, but you're starting to find your feet with it now. Kate's helped you out. Jess is doing the same for me a little bit. But that whole idea of just switching off from this thing that's never finished. I mean, there's always more articles to read. There's There's different approaches. There's different perspectives. There's just an endless amount of angles that you can approach an athlete from and then there's you know your side of the job just the knowledge that you can take in what do you do to switch off from this now how do you actually just give yourself a break yeah i'm not sure that i actually do um i think that's that's part of part of passion of struggling to switch off i think i've started to see the importance of why i need to switch off Mm. um and why i've made the decisions i have uh, regarding my career and um, and why I've why I've sort of taken the the leap of faith, I guess, to to be more full on with my coaching, um, is because the the one moment that I started to see was to my own detriment, and was something that was against my own values, was the fact that when I was spending time with my kids, and I, I've got a young young boy Brody who's three and a half, and and another a young fella Lachlan who who's only just past six months, and what I started to find was. All I wanted to do was spend time with them, but whenever I did, I was almost distracted and frustrated that I was needing to spend time and play with them, which is the most amazing thing to be able to do. And I was distracted because I felt like I had this and this and this to do. And uh, and that became really disconcerting for me. And it was something that, that my wife was quite critical of me. Um, and And I had to hear that and I had to finally listen to it. Um, because ultimately I started to recognise it wasn't in line with my values. Mm. And I, I quite openly say to my athletes that, um, that my family is my first priority. Yeah. So if I have to be there for my family, I'll be, them f- be there for them before I'm going to be there for you. And if anyone wants to work with me, they have to accept that, otherwise they're not going to get much out of me. Mm. Um, and I'm not going to gel well with them um, because ultimately I'm going to resent the fact that they're taking me away from something that's my higher priority. So I guess that's that's always in the back of my mind, and 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 I I, I always use my family as my um, as my my I guess my moral thermometer. Mm. Um, if if I'm doing something or I'm acting in a way that if I realise that my boys might one day find out that I did or said or acted in that way and they're embarrassed or disappointed in me, that'll be shattering for me. So uh, so I always and I think that's what's calmed me down, um, taken me off the defensive. Um, and uh, and allowed me to to I guess mellow out a little bit mm. in my approach because I sit there and think no hang on how do I want them to view me how do I want them to see me and that's most important to me so if I'm if 
if I'm talking to an athlete in a way, or if I treat someone in a way, or if I respond to a, you know, a, a coach's criticism or or um, or you know, <laughs> whatever they say, if I approach that and, and do that in a in a nasty way, if I if I have the whole world feeling like I'm an absolute dickhead, mm. then I don't know that I'm going to be comfortable with that if that's something that my kids are going to be exposed to in the future. So I'd rather. I'd rather have a positive relationship with people around me than accept that something is just going to be negative. Yeah. I'd rather uh, recognise a way to try and facilitate that to become positive rather than leave it in the negative. And I think that's what's changed. That's what's changed. My family has changed me, my my love for my children and and the way that I want them to, to see me and, um, and hopefully be inspired by me. And it's one thing, you know, we, we talked about the fact that in the last week of... I've um, stepped away from a job that I'd been in for 10 years and, and part of that was, was the opportunity to sort of say goodbye to the staff and, and one of the points I made to them was it's very hard to walk away from teaching because it is such a great job. It is such a great job. It offers a great lifestyle. I feel that, that teachers uh, get remunerated exceptionally well for the, for the nine months a year we work yeah. and I, I don't have any complaints as a teacher. Um, there's not too much that scares me about being a teacher or discourages me from being a teacher. And I said, but ultimately I needed my kids to see that to achieve what I want to, to achieve what you want to achieve, it's not always the easy path to take. Mm. Sometimes you have to make those tough decisions. And this has been a tough decision for me and, um, and I could have stayed in my comfort zone and stayed teaching. I didn't have to leave. I was a permanent teacher. I, I, I liked the school I was at. It was a school I went to. I had a lot of pride in being part of that, in that community. Um, but ultimately, I need my kids to see that, okay, for them to achieve their goals and dreams in the future, they might have to make some tough decisions. They may have to be uncomfortable about some things. Mm. You know, they may have to go without some things. Um, because ultimately the satisfaction of achieving what you want to achieve one day is is far greater than any of those superficial aspects. Yeah. So um, I, I explained to the staff that I'd worked with for such a long time that that was my motivation, that hopefully that my kids will see that I made those tough choices when I needed to, to follow the, tr- the path and the dream that I had. And um, and if that's what I get out of this, that'll be that'll be yeah. all the reward I can look for. Man, that's awesome, and I love I love how much thought goes into um, you know not only the coaching side, just every aspect of your life. And I think it's something I've always looked up to you for. I just think it's uh, it's really it's refreshing, and it's I think it's just healthy. Um, but it's not something that's easily learned. And and one thing I was going to learn. So there's obviously there's all this wisdom coming at me from the other side of the table, which I love. But where is it that you get this stuff from? Is it is it books that you uh, that you read, or is it people that you listen to? Like who do you go to for for inspiration, for refreshment, for encouragement? Because I guess uh, coming from an athlete's perspective, um, I know there's probably decisions I made in my athletics career that if I could go back now and and do it differently, I definitely would. But I think maybe my ego and a little bit of self-obsession throughout that part of my life got in the way and it just blinded me from seeing certain ways I was treating people or any relationships and and things like that. But stepping out of that uh, athlete role now and, and looking back, I can sort of see how how quiet, how lonely the, the coaching role uh, mm. must really be. And it's a, I guess it's a very isolated sort of role that a lot of people probably don't understand because you've continually got us athletes coming to you to get advice or to get encouraged or to get refreshed or to get just whatever it is that we mm. come to you guys for. And then 
you're left with just okay i guess i've given everything i have it's time to go back to my family now i'm exhausted um how do you refresh ah look i mean what you just said there is exactly what i was like as an athlete i would have been a complete pain in the ass to coach (laughs) i feel sorry for the coaches that ever had to deal with me um I actually think someone like Sean Cryan actually handled me very well um, because he didn't buy into that nonsense. I was neurotic on my own account and, and he, you know, we, we wouldn't spend much time together. He lived in Canberra and I lived in Adelaide. Yeah. Um, and so so there was, uh, you know, I, I had to deal with myself. Um, so I, I was no different to most athletes and I think that's why I sort of have the patience for some of the, the things I go through with athletes too. And I sit there and go, geez. I feel a bit hard done by in some of these things, but I go, oh, I can't blame the athlete because I wouldn't have been much different. I can't blame that they view me and my role in this way because I was no different. Um, and when, when you talk about where did I find the sort of centred level that I feel I've got to now, I don't know that it was necessarily influenced or just I finally understood myself. Mm. And, uh, and that came from... Um, I don't know. Like, I mean, I think one of the things that's always been a part of me is I've had a really strong emotionally analytical sort of brain. Mm. So I'd always, I'd always be if if something went wrong, I'd always be looking at, oh, what did I do to, to influence that, or what did I do wrong? And I think that sometimes that's caused me more grief than anything. Yeah. But at the same time, um, it's caused me to take stock and look at things and look at what I can do to influence, or, or do I have any influence there? And sometimes I just don't, and mm. I do sort of recognise that. So I think that's really part of the, the relationship building in a coach. Um, and, and you know, well, look, sometimes I walk away from situations that I know I walked into as frustrated as I could be and as pissed off as I might be. And somehow I've gone into having a discussion with an athlete about something and had this remarkable calm that even I walked away and <laughs> semi-impressed with myself that I held my shit together. Um, and I don't know, I don't know why. Yeah. I don't know where I found the strength or the energy to do that. Um, because sometimes I just feel like going in and, you know, going like a bull out of a gate. And, and, and then I've, I've sat down and I've looked at the person across the table from me and I've recognised that they have their own challenges and I don't need to be an extra one of those. Mm. Um, uh, I might need to help them understand their own challenges, but I'm not there to be the challenge. And I think that's, that's been the hard part. And, look, I, I know I've, I've got on the phone to some athletes in difficult situations and I've been pretty nervous going into it. And for some reason, it all just made sense to me when I started having those conversations. And I think, I think that's what I value a lot about having athletes in a situation where I can connect with them. You know, I, I feel that the times when things don't work between myself and athletes is when we fail to connect. And it's not about we don't understand each other. It's we don't make the time or the effort to connect, mm. whether that's from my end or from the athlete's end. And so when we, when we have regular conversations, that's not every day. It might be on a weekly basis. And some athletes, it might be on a fortnightly or a monthly basis even. But if I fail to make the effort to, to connect with them and show them that they're important to me and for them to also do the same to me to show that they value what I've got to say, then you just start separating further and further. And the longer you leave that connection... Uh, from happening, the the greater the difficulty is in forming that bond and understanding mm. to to have those honest conversations. So, yeah, I, I think that's yeah. I have to say, sometimes I even surprise myself. I don't know where it comes from. Yeah. I know I get a lot of a lot of meaning out of my conversations from the 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 lengthy conversations I had with my own mum. You know, who 
who has a very similar sort of mindset to me, uh, very different upbringings, but but yet we we can talk, and somehow we we have the same understanding of situations. We might approach them in different ways, but um, but yeah, the, the conversations that I've had with my mum have probably been the sort of things that that have sort of got me to the point where I have now. And you know, in our family, we've had some difficult situations with my brothers, with my dad, with with even mum at times. Had difficult situations, but. One of the things I've always focused on is my relationship with each person within yeah. that 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 group, and I, and the same happens now. I could be frustrated with coaching on a whole, but I have to focus on my relationship with each individual, mm. and that that came from when my parents separated, and there was a aggro between my, myself and my brothers, between mum and dad, between myself, and I started sitting there and sitting back and going, okay, well, how do I value my relationships with these people? And it was okay with with my brother. I've got to have my own relationship. I can't be influenced by how yeah. how someone, how mum or dad or my other brother thinks about them. And and I had to keep just separating and having my own individual relationships with them. Um, and I think that's probably taught me to do the same with my coaching. Yeah. You know, I could have these rules and guidelines, and we, we've even gone down that path with with my group team Temper. We've had guidelines of expected behaviours and things like that, um, and values agreements, and and ultimately none of those things are really stuck too long. Because what I recognised was when an athlete comes into the group and asks me to coach them, they come in to look for me to be their coach. Um, how I facilitate that training environment is important, um, but also how I play my role as a coach is important to develop that in relationship with that individual. No matter how any other athlete thinks about them, what a, what the former coach thinks about them, what the competitors think about yeah. them, or, or you know whatever, um, my relationship with that person is is what I need to focus on. And, uh, and that helps me to connect with them, help them to have faith in what they're doing and in, in me to provide them with a program that's going to be effective for yeah. them. So, yeah, I think, I think for me, I, I'm, I, you know, even listening to the way I talk, it's not very much the science that I focus on. It's the, you know, I have a, a reasonable understanding of that stuff, but it's more about the psychology. Mm. And I think that was something that always came true. And, and again, referring to that question, how did I get to do or uh, be what I'm what I am now and, and approach things the way I do now, well, I think it's just almost that innate thing that that's that's probably the talent that I had because I certainly didn't have the talent to be the very best runner I could be. And I probably, through the psychology of my own, um, inhibited me being as mentally tough as I could be. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I still work today with a sports psychologist who I used to touch base with as an athlete. As a coach, I recognise I have my own level of performance I need to be responsible for. And that's not cracking the shits at times, and it's <laughs> not uh, not getting carried away with my emotions at times when things are frustrating me, and and working and keeping my own balance is going to help me to do that. So my role and responsibility in my performance is my own something that I have to take care care mm. of, and and that that's that's important to me to do yeah, that well. That's cool. We only got a few minutes left, man. But just before we, we finish up, I just wanted to. You mentioned Team Tempo just a moment ago, and I just want to touch on Team Tempo, your your training group over in in South Australia. Um, I look at the Kenyans, I look at the Ethiopians, and I look at uh, these guys. Seem to have uh, athletics is far more than just an individual sport to these guys. Sure, sure, they want to perform at a high level, and sure, they're all on a mission to beat each other. But when they train, and even when they race, a lot of the time they work together in a way which is which is sort of really beautiful for a distance sport it's crazy to see these guys all collaborate their powers in order to bring each of them to a far greater performance than they probably could have done by themselves and there's something that's making a big impact there and 
just before we finish up, I'd love to be able to speak about that that team aspect of what you've created with your group in Australia because I I hadn't ever seen anything like that really built before unless it was in a a, a team sport. Hmm. I, I think the the start of that was when yourself, um, Dan, and I were training together. Um, because we had such a strong bond and responsibility to each other, mm. and that was it was it, yeah you look back it was like a brotherhood, mm. but uh, but I loved that I loved it and when I um and that that's what got the best out of me as an athlete that was the best training environment I ever had and it wasn't a big group it was no. three of us yeah. three of us with a coach in the state who would who would get on the phone with us and tell us our training so it was it was quite interesting to see that a group doesn't need to be something massive it can be something small it's that it's that bond you have and and neither of us would have had any jealousy if the other one beat the other yeah it would have been stoked for them and it's kind of that part of things that you know i i felt a lot of a lot of pride in seeing you guys do well because i knew that look ultimately there was also a responsibility to me to be there for you mm. as a training partner as a mate as, and, and you know and, and you know, as you alluded to before, you know, supporting you with your training because you were you were a bit younger than the two of us, um, and so, uh, you know, to see you do well gave me a lot of just as much joy as it did when I ran yeah. well. And and I certainly, you know, Dan and I used to compete quite quite a lot together, and there were, you know, I was probably beating him a lot in the early days, and he started beating me at times, and and I never felt any animosity towards that. I thought, well. Well, crap! If I can't win this race, I certainly hope that you or Dan will win it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that was that was something I was really proud of. And and I guess through uni, I I really took a fond interest in group dynamics. I actually did a lot of reading on it and research. So when I had the opportunity to work with a group, I really set it up on the principles of of um, team cohesion and group dynamics and and uh, and the the sort of theories that I'd sort of learnt about. And, and implemented them. Sometimes I went too far, and I even had even had my principal at school, and I was talking to him about it. Say, does everyone want that approach? And I thought to myself, well, you know, I always kind of hope that would, but recognised, no, you're probably right. Not everyone does. So it's had to mould, evolve over time. Um, but yet, I still sort of say that to any new athlete. You know, like you're coming into a group, you have a responsibility to be consistent within this group. You have a responsibility to do your best in this group um, because it's a culture that you're trying to develop. And if you have a poor culture, it spreads very quickly mm. and it takes over. And we've even had that within our group and we've had to tackle that, look at ways to improve it, get it back to a level that, that we're satisfied is a, is a performance environment and allow, enables it people to get the best out of encourages people to get the best out of them, drives them to get the best out of them. And, uh, and and right now I feel we've got a really good environment within Team Tempo and, and it's something that people are, uh, are, you know, who have come in have been really surprised about. They probably didn't expect it to be what it was. Mm. But at the same time, um, you know, it, it can have its it can have its detractions yeah. and, and we have to be sort of open to that. We have to allow people to be individuals within a group and not everyone and not expect everyone to to, to walk the same way, look the same way, you know, laugh at the same jokes, yeah. um, but allow them to be individuals and accept that within the group. And I think that's what I really like about the individuals that I work with now, that mm. they they do value and respect everyone in the group. They see the little quirks about some people. They see the little uh, things that sometimes they have to tolerate, but the fact that their teammates gives them that motivation to tolerate certain things mm. and accept others. So uh, I'm really proud of the people I work with. Um, it, you know, I, I would say that... Uh, 
that a challenging year was last year, and there were moments where I didn't know if I want, didn't think I was even going to continue coaching at points after the Olympics. I thought that would almost be it for me. Yeah. Um, and and then I came home and I saw all these guys who were so excited for what had happened, <laughs> and uh, and it wasn't even that. It was it was the fact that they um, that they were such great individuals to work with. And, and gave me so much joy to work with them that regardless of what level people were at, I, I, was, I was straight back into it. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and I haven't struggled for motivation since then. I, th- I think that's probably ultimately, I wouldn't be the only coach who goes to that. After you go through the highs of an Olympic campaign, you hit a pretty big low at the bottom uh, when you come back from that and you have to sort of build yourself back up. And, and it certainly didn't take me long. And in the past, it's taken me longer to build myself back up. But right this time, it was great back yeah. on. Um, you know, within a couple of weeks, I was I was as enthusiastic as I've ever been, probably more so. Yeah. So um, you know, and 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 from our group, we had two athletes at the Olympics in Rio, and and I straight away said, oh, I'd love to have three in Tokyo. <laughs> you know, yeah. who knows? Um, so I, I certainly saw that it, it was something I loved doing and, and wanted to continue doing. There was there was absolutely no question in my mind. Yeah, that's really cool. And, uh, very last question, just before we wrap it up, um, over pizza last night at Franco Manca, you were telling me that. Um, yeah, you've got a, a coaching website online for people all around the world for anyone who's listening to your story right now and thinking far out like I'd love to maybe connect with this guy or get him to write a couple of programs for me or just get a bit of insight from an Olympic coach um, it's something that not a lot of people would even know who to turn to so obviously with you sitting across the table and saying hey you've got something to offer um, give us a quick run over um, the, the program that you've put together Tempo Run Coach just for anyone around the world who's interested in, in maybe being able to do a little bit of work along with you yeah, I mean, well, Tempo Run Coach started um, about three years ago, four years ago now, when, when my son was born, I wanted to spend one day a week away from the school environment working and to have a bit more flexibility at home. But just the, you know, life and, and work and, and everything just got too much to be able to develop it. And over the last year or so, one of my assistant coaches, Matthew Fennick, who, who, I, who I, funny enough, grew up with, I've known him since I was four years of age, and and he was in my older brother's year level. He, he came back to Adelaide and started running with me and, and he showed a bit of interest in coaching and so I encouraged him to get involved with what we were doing and, and he's really kept it afloat over the last 12 months. Um, and since getting back from Rio, we thought, okay, some good opportunity here. We'd really like to do this more. We're all motivated to do it. And another coach who works with us, Andrew Beck, who does strength and conditioning and, and does some technical uh, work with the athletes in Team Tempo came on board too, and the, the three of us have got a uh, have got a, a number of areas that we can facilitate support people. So uh, the website's temporuncoach.com, um, and we do online programming, and we have uh, group training sessions in Adelaide, and and hopefully we can sort of spread that more nationally in the future. We'll wait and see how things go. It's certainly something we're motivated to do, uh, but. But yeah, we're just liking the opportunity to be able to work with people with with all different backgrounds and pasts who who just have a goal in mind that they want to um, you know tackle their first marathon or just get running and and be injury free or learn to enjoy it through through an approach that's structured and and uh, goal driven. So yeah, yeah that, that that's really what we've tried to do to sort of ch- take our elite approach and and mould it towards what recreational runners would 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 enjoy. Yeah, beautiful. Man. Well, I, honestly, I could talk to you about this stuff all night, but you're in London for a race of Jess Trangoves on Sunday. Don't want to keep you up all night here talking athletics because we've got to get you some sleep so you can run around the course and cheer her on. But, hey, man, hey, love what you're doing, as you already knew, um, and uh, I'm sure everyone listening did too. So thanks for thanks for having a chat. 
I appreciate it, Toss.